This morning, our text is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. And as we've been dealing with the subject of living life and how to do things according to God's plan, if you looked at the last number of messages, that that seems to be the theme. Every person is gifted with life. Some enter life with many benefits and some with a few. And we often hear the phrase, just get a life. And I think that simply means just do better with the life that you've been given. None of us chose the families we were born into, the communities we were born into. It's just where we are. And presently, there's a lot of discussion and even angst in our society about those who have privilege and those who do not. And of course, the thinking by some at least is that we need to level this playing field. It's not fair that some enter life with nothing or virtually nothing and others enter life with what we call privilege. And so steps are recommended to take. And it's not, what's interesting is it's not to bring those that started with nothing to, to raise them up, to bring them to the point where they can be who they can be. But it's somehow we need to bring the privileged people need to come down and, and join the others. Taking from the haves and giving it to the have-nots. And one of the issues that is being dealt with currently is reparations, which has to do with slavery. And I just read this morning that in California, they, uh, they have a board that has been convened and been studying this for the last several years. And they've come up that every person of color should receive $1.2 million. Because somehow there's this systemic racism that has permeated our society. So that's their recommendation. We've all heard the phrase, give a man a fish and he eats for a day. Teach a man to fish and he will eat for a lifetime. The fact is, it's much easier to give somebody a fish and then send them on their merry way than it is to spend the energy and the time that it takes to teach them to fish or to provide for themselves is what the saying actually means. Plus, the fact is, then they won't need me anymore. Somehow it seems in many people we get this this ego boost by helping someone else, which isn't good. And many of the helpful programs in place are designed to create ongoing dependence and not self-sufficiently. Sufficiency. Sorry. In our church library, there's a book titled When Helping Hurts. And if, if there's a book that I could require you to read, that would be one of them. So I invite you, any of you that are interested in that, to seek that book out and to read it. When Helping Hurts, it actually it talks about this and other issues as well. But it is it helps us understand from the other side, the non-privileges perspective on how just giving fish is really counterproductive. So all of that said, this morning we're back looking at the subject of living life God's way. And I want to specifically look for us to look at the subject of wisdom. And as I started to prepare for this, I thought, well, this is going to be easy. There's so much about wisdom. The farther I went, the harder it gets, because there is so much about wisdom. But we're going to attempt at it. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, 
Paul is addressing life in contrast, I'll put it that way. The Christian and the non-Christian. Or better put, is the Christ follower and the non-Christ follower, or the self-follower. A person can claim to be a Christian and not be a Christ follower. Jesus said this, and said this to the Jews who had believed Him, if you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. Just saying we believe in Him doesn't do anything. It's if we abide in Him, if we trust in Him, if we obey Him, then we are truly His disciples. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse, or chapter 4, verse 17, why don't we read this together? Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Say that word, no longer. Words, no longer. No longer. What that tells us, Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus, to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Meaning, at one point they did. So stop doing what you were doing and now do something else. No longer walk in the futility of their minds. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he tells us, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Say, imitators of God. Imitators of God. So we're to no longer do as we once did, but now we are to be imitators of God, our Heavenly Father. And then our text in verse 15 of chapter 5, 15 and 16. Look care, very careful, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Don't live like fools in this world, but like those who are wise. There are two kinds of people that Paul is talking about, the wise and the foolish, the wise and the unwise. And he says that we're to redeem the time. Your clock is ticking. The world's clock is ticking. And it's, we all know we're getting older every single day. And sometimes we can feel that. That clock just keeps ticking. So Paul says, redeem the time. Make use of the time in the best way possible. Time is of the essence. And there are a couple reasons he gives us. One is because our Heavenly Father is wise. We're to imitate Him because He is the epitome of wisdom. And the second is because the days are evil. Things seem to be getting worse. I just heard this week that the communications director of the Ohio Right to Life was fired because she put on her personal X account that our only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And they fired her. They said there was other reasons too. But it created this big discussion, this big blow up, because she was part of Ohio Right to Life. So we can't say that anymore without there being trouble. That's just one example. Wisdom. And I'll be the first to admit that that is a subject that is, well, it's as big as our universe. It encompasses everything. And there's no way that anyone could probably do justice in speaking on the subject, but we're going to attempt to scratch the surface a little bit this morning. 
In the Old Testament, there are five books that are classified as wisdom literature. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Wisdom literature deals with how to live well. We often hear that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. You ever heard that? How do we know that that's true? In 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 through 34, listen to what Jeremiah, who wrote 1 and 2 Kings, said. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand of the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all the nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. But that's just what Jeremiah thought. What did God think? Back up a few chapters, one chapter, and in chapter 3 of 1 Kings, verse 10 through 12, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. When Solomon became king, the Lord said, came to him and said, ask for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon asked for wisdom to rule the people well. So God replied, because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you ask for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one else has ever had or ever will have. That's what God said about Solomon. But that presents us with a problem, doesn't it? Solomon, at least towards the end of his life, doesn't seem to have been all that wise. He made some very, very foolish, unwise choices in life to the extent that he ended up worshiping idols. Someone has said this, the story of Solomon is a sad object lesson, a moral tale. Failing to heed God brings destruction. And Solomon systematically failed to heed God. We'll come back to Solomon later. So what is wisdom? As we think about that word, wisdom, what is it? In Webster's 1828 edition, he writes this, the right use or exercise of knowledge. That's nice. Sorry, Mr. Webster, but that's not clear enough for me. <laughs> because who determines or how do we determine what right use of knowledge is? The right use. Somebody has to decide this is right use or this is right use. Let me give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, Jim was preaching. You remember he was up here? And he said something. And I can almost remember verbatim what he said. He said, Mike, these nails are sticking up. 
Did you use the word you drive them in? I've felt these nails for I don't know how many years. Rob's not here this morning. I know he's felt them for 50 anyway. I've got a solution. We are going to take care of those nails once and for all. All right? I'm just tired of it. So here we go. Should I? Let's. I pounded those nails in 20 times over the years, and they keep coming out. Okay. Took care of them, Jim. My definition of wisdom, and you can write this down if you want, using knowledge to gain the desired outcome. Using knowledge to gain the desired outcome. In this case, the the desired outcome was getting those nails back into place. The nails are driven. And if I'd have driven them the way I felt like driving them, they'd have really been driven. But that would have been the least of my worries, right? The nails would have been embedded. The podium, the pulpit would have been destroyed. I reach, I achieved, I used my knowledge how to use a sledgehammer. I used my knowledge and how to drive nails. But the desired outcome was not quite what I expected or what any of us expected. It fell far short of the ultimate goal. There was knowledge, but it was not wise, was it, if I'd have gone through with it. There are three kinds of wisdom that I want us to consider, and I won't cover them all today. We'll basically get to one of them today. The first is practical wisdom. The second is worldly wisdom. And the third is heavenly wisdom. So let's look at the first one, practical wisdom. We use this every single day. How many of you have ever heard of Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac? Have you ever read any of it? We use statements that he says all the time. All the time. It contains weather forecasts, legal and medical information, snatches of poetry, inspirational literature, It was published annually for 25 years, and his goal through that was to make people wiser in a moral sense. Now, Benjamin Franklin was not an evangelical Christian. Some say he was a deist. We can argue that. Some of the most famous statements or sayings that he had in Poor Richard's Almanac, well done is better than well said. Haste makes waste. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man... Okay, you remember that. And he also said, don't drive nails with a sledgehammer. He didn't say that. There's another one he didn't say. I forgot one right here. He didn't say, a penny saved is a penny earned. He never said that. It was something kind of similar, but it means something completely different. Anyway, they make practical sense for life. Practical wisdom, as do many of the Proverbs that are written in our Scriptures. Proverbs 27.14 If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. 
So if I go to Todd's house tomorrow morning at 4.30, and I walk outside his bedroom window, and I said, hey, Todd, good morning. He'd probably say, what are you doing? <laughs> Proverbs 25.17, don't visit your neighbors too often, or you will wear out your welcome. Proverbs 10.26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. Okay, those are practical sayings for practical living. If I were to ask you this morning, do you think our culture operates with practical wisdom? We might say, well, sometimes, sometimes, obviously sometimes not. We're not quite. It does to a point. Let me give an example. I noticed recently that there have been several new or at least new to you vehicles in the church parking lot. Now, I will assume that those of you who purchased those did some research prior to your purchase and didn't go out and find something that just looks pretty. People do that, you know, as well as when choosing a husband or wife. Well, he looks kind of nice. She looks kind of pretty. That's good enough for me. I, I assumed you didn't do that in buying your vehicle. The first step was what do I actually need? In practical wisdom, okay, what do I actually need? Do I need a big, I'm going to pick on you truck drivers, I'm, do I actually need a big truck? Or would a station wagon suffice? Or maybe just a wheelbarrow? Maybe all I really need is just a five-gallon bucket. We can convince ourselves, right? But that's the first step. Okay, what do I need? And then once we decide what we need, we go to the next step. What's it going to cost? Do I have the resources to pay for this vehicle? All of us do, or we should do, a needs-based cost analysis. We go through all those steps. That's how practical wisdom works. We just, or at least it should work that way. But that takes time and it takes effort. And the fact is, the sale ends tomorrow. This deal won't last long. It's only for a limited time. And it's a low monthly payment if you act now. So the idea is, just forget what you need. Just, it looks nice. Hey, it's a deal. Man, honey, it's a deal. We, we got to do it now or we'll lose this deal. It's funny. When I saw all those trucks in the parking lot, all of a sudden I found that I needed a new truck. Funny how that works. I'm not even sure I need a five-gallon bucket at this point. Or to the more mundane things, the more down-to-earth things, do I buy brand name mac and cheese or store brand? You might say, well, that's ridiculous. Is it? Maybe. It can be. It's just mac and cheese. Does it matter? I say, yes, it matters. Because every little choice that we make in life adds up 
to bigger choices and bigger choices. I like red Corvettes. They just look nice. And they're extremely practical. They'll carry my five-gallon bucket. Ruth likes yellow Corvettes. So we decided we're each going to buy a Corvette. She doesn't know this yet. She's going to get a yellow one. I'm going to get a red one. Our problem is, is which of our kids will let us live with them because I have to sell everything we own. (laughs) Practical wisdom is important. Remember the quote about Solomon, how he systematically failed to heed God. One little choice here, and then the next one was easier, and it became bigger and bigger. It was a systematic process that he involved himself in. So, life is filled with decisions, decisions, decisions. We make them every day and they are necessary and they are important. And the fact is, we want our children to grow up to make wise, practical decisions, right? We want them to go through the process of, do I need this? And if I do, what can I manage? We we want them to go through that process. But hopefully, we want more than just practical wisdom for them. We want them to be true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ above everything else. We want them to be dedicated Christ followers first. John Wesley said, what one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. And I'm going to add to that. What one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces and could very likely destroy the next generation. The ancient Israelites, I think, are a prime example. The first generation just tolerated idols in their, in their community. Well, they're, I mean, it's, I, I wouldn't do it, but who am I to say? I mean, I don't like it. It's bad, but, 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 you know how that goes. And then the next generation, they embrace those idols. And then what happened is they started intermixing the worship of those idols with the worship of Jehovah. They worshiped Jehovah in the temple like they should. And then they started worshiping these idols elsewhere. The next generation, forget Jehovah. We want these idols. See how that works? There's a pastor in a large church in Marietta, Georgia. I read about Miles Rutherford. Ben, you'd like his hair. We are one generation from a godless society. And he is so true. Because if we start shoving off things here, the next generation is going to be, well, what do we need that for? And then... It's all downhill from there. Every little decision matters. We're not talking this morning primarily about practical, earthly wisdom. Things like macaroni and cheese and trucks and all that. But in a sense, we are. We can convince ourselves, well, it's just one song. It's It's just one movie. It's just one magazine. It's just one website. 
And we can convince ourselves, but we're systematically destroying ourselves by what we allow to come in to our minds, to our families. You, you understand what I'm trying to say. Remember the question at the very beginning. How and who determines what is right use of knowledge? In James chapter 3, and I know Jim is preaching through James, but sorry, Jim, I got here first. You can elaborate because we'll have long forgotten this anyway. Who is wise and understanding among you? He's asking a question. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James is dealing with worldly wisdom, and we'll get that into that more next time. But that question that he asks... Who is wise and understanding among you? It's not the ones who get all the good deals that he's talking about. It's not practical wisdom. There are many smart people in this world, but by whose standards? And we would, the world considers them wise. But by whose standards? James says that a good life reveals a wise person of understanding. Practical wisdom comes with limitations. Being wise is not everything an end in itself. It's not the goal to be practically wise. It's important, and we should seek to do that, but that's not our ultimate goal is just to be a wise person by earthly standards. It's meant to lead us somewhere beyond. James says that wisdom shows itself in deeds done in humility. A person with great practical wisdom must guard, we must guard ourselves against arrogance and self-sufficiency. Meaning, we must not let our practical wisdom go to our head. Do you know how smart I am? That was Nebuchadnezzar's problem as he walked on the roof of his palace. Look what I have made. Look how practically my wisdom is just so grand and great. And God says, your time is up. That's it. It went to his head. Solomon, and I think here we find a warning He was the wisest man, practically speaking, but he was a fool in the things of God. And that practical wisdom led him astray. Solomon began to amass all of the very things that God bid for the kings of Israel. In Deuteronomy 17, we read of them. Horses. Nothing wrong with horses as long as they're in someone else's pasture. There's nothing wrong with that. But God said, as a king, you are not to amass horses. You're not to amass wives. 
and silver and gold. Why? Horses could lead to a sense of military superiority. Wives would be a means of forming political alliances with with neighboring nations. And wealth, because it would give a sense of security. It all made practical sense, but it was his downfall. The cost was immense. Remember the definition we started with. Using knowledge to gain the desired outcome. Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul. Jesus saw the goal of life for every human being. What happens to our soul, our eternal being? And what profit in that day will it be for a man if he has gained the whole world? Solomon and many since have gained much in this life, but have failed to gain the desired outcome as God defines it. And there is where we find the answer to who determines what right use is. Or as James says, what is good? Who defines that? Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the foundation where all wisdom is derives its where it comes from. The Lord is the one who defines what is good and what right use is. Nothing else and no one else does. All practical use all practical wisdom may be useful for the short term, but without the Lord being the foundation it is doomed to ultimate failure. Fear of the Lord is defined this way. The continual awareness that our loving Heavenly Father is watching and evaluating everything we think, say, and do. And I would even suggest He's even watching which macaroni and cheese we buy. That may seem foolish, but let that roll around in your minds for a while. It's just mac and cheese. It may seem insignificant, but in all those small choices in life, they have an influence on our desired outcome. And Paul admonishes us to be careful how we live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Some of us are on the the downward slope of the hill. Let me put it that way. We're we're heading. We're we've gone around third, and we're heading for home. We've made some poor choices in life. There are things that we wish we would have done differently. The fact is, we can't. 
We can't change what has happened in the past. But if fearing the Lord as defined in this statement, the continual awareness that our loving Heavenly Father is watching and evaluating everything we think, say, and do. He knows the desires of our heart. He knows our failures. And He knows those effect, the effect on others that those failures have had. But He is our loving Heavenly Father. And we just come to His loving arms of grace. And Lord, we give this to You. I've failed. Please, take it. Take my failure and do something good from it. He's the only one who can. That is wisdom. Our number one trait as a human being, as a Christian human being, is humility. We have to come before God in humility, and we have to come before one another in humility. I don't get everything right. I make mistakes. I say things I shouldn't. I react to things in a way that I shouldn't. But how do I respond when I'm confronted with those? Hopefully, it's humility. Let's stand together as we close this morning. Father, this morning we thank You. We thank You for Solomon. Lord, we know that he did some incredible things. We have, we have a number of books in our Bible that were written by him. The Proverbs, nuggets of truth that are for practical everyday living. And also in our, in our long-term view of, of reaching our ultimate goal of being in your presence. But Father, we have the example of his failure and how he allowed little things to turn into bigger things that turned into bigger things. So Father, give us the wisdom. Give us humility to honestly examine ourselves the way we think, the way we act, the things we do, even the things we buy. Help us to see how those affect the way we worship You and honor You and what they say to others. Father, I just pray that You'll help us to understand how we're to live in these days. We hear of our brothers and sisters in, in Nigeria, in Pakistan, who are, who are driven from their homes and they have nothing but the clothes on their back. Father, how would I respond in a similar situation to that? Father, I pray that You'll just teach us Open our eyes and our hearts to understand how You want us to live today in this place, in the United States of America, here in these counties in southeastern Ohio. Father, that we would be Your hands and Your feet, that we would honor You in everything that we say and do. Father, go with us this week. May we honor You with our words and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.